Welcome to Genius Leadership Podcast, where we discuss how to overcome everything as a leader. I'm your host, Anna Liebel, a mind shifter, helping male leaders in tech get out of the firefighting mode, become the proactive leaders they want to be, and enjoy the ride as they go. Join me every week for honest, insightful conversations with corporate, entrepreneurial, and academic leaders. We discuss their roller coaster ride of leading from their zone of genius and when they don't. If you find this show valuable, please subscribe and share it so that more of us can live a healthier and happier life. Now, let's get into the episode. Hey, Genius Leader, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first episode of 2024. I have been thinking of doing a solo episode or not, but I'm still in the middle of my reflections for the year and planning of the next year, so I thought of waiting until real January to record the episode of a solo episode about my my journey. Uh, so here it is, a guest episode with Peter Gudjonsson. A beautiful story. Not a beautiful story, but a beautiful conversation with a fantastic human. A leader who really has no prestige related to his role, who is very humble, very kind and warm-hearted, and who very generously is sharing his story about his journey with work, stress, burnout, and actually getting further than burnout, which I didn't know that existed actually, but he shares his journey and how he was diagnosed with being sickly stressed, which is the next step after burnout. So we're talking about what led to that diagnosis, what happened in Peter's mind and body when he received that quote-unquote label or the name to what he was feeling, and his journey since then. I'm never sure, or for, for some time I was never sure whether I should do all these stories about burnout or not, whether they're really helpful or whether entrepreneurs and leaders have to go through their own experience of burnout and these stories do not help. But just as Pietro's story shows that actually these stories do help because that's how he realized that he was in a burnout or accepted that for himself by hearing a radio show where psychiatrist or psychologist, I don't remember, was talking about symptoms of burnout. So I will keep doing these stories. The show is not going to be only about the burnout, but I see it so much that I do want to address this topic on a continuous basis. So enjoy this topic. We are talking about leadership styles. We're talking about feedback, about growing the company from being the 26th employee of the company to leading over 800 people in 35 countries by the time he was retiring. Uh, or by the time he stepped down uh, from full-time engagement at uh, the company. We are talking about the help that people can get and how the development of society goes. And we also touch the topic of the gender roles in the society. And uh, one shift that Peter thinks has made a big difference in the society, both for women and men, and the well-being of, of of humans based on that change. I think that was a very interesting turn of the conversation as well. And so much more. We're, we're touching on, on different topics. Uh, so as I said, it's not only about the burnout, and I do hope that you'll listen to it, you'll enjoy it, you'll learn from it, and you'll let Pietro know if you have appreciated the conversation. Enjoy it, and see you on the other side. Well, my name is Pietro Gutjansson, and uh, I studied electrical engineering at university. 
And uh, after a year in the workplace, I started working for a very dynamic company called Morel. And within a year, and this company was making electronics and weighing equipment or a software system. Uh, I was employee number 26. And uh, after a year, I was on my way to Canada to start the first subsidiary company of, of Morel. And this was highly unusual in the company at that time. This is 1985. This is now very common, done all the time. But at that time, I was unheard of. So what exactly? That Icelandic company would expand internationally and yes. open? Mm-hmm. Yes, because it's, it was working in the seafood industry. And uh, at that time, I mean, 85% of the export from Iceland was seafood. Uh, so the equipment was, was meant for the seafood industry to enhance it. And uh, in Canada, uh, the fisheries was quite similar to here. So, yeah, two families went over there and, uh, and we basically had to do everything. I mean, you could hardly communicate to Iceland. I mean, you had to use telex to phone was this. Personally, our family could phone home uh, once a month because it was too expensive. So uh, this changed uh, over, the, over the next few years and you got the facts and so on and easier to transmit uh, digitally and so on. Uh, so communication was, was very different. It's not like today where you can have live feed video uh, at no cost and so on. It's, it's very, very different. So uh, to break into a new market and you think it's the same as uh, the fisheries in Iceland and so on, it is different. So we had to adapt the equipment and we had to do everything, you know, sell, install, service and so on and break into new markets like uh, out west in Seattle, Alaska. Uh, down south into kind of a fish farming in, in the U.S. and so on. So I took on very early. I was 26 years old at that time. So I, I took on a quite a big responsibility very early in my, my career. I, and I enjoyed that and, uh, and was uh, able to pick, pick the right people to work me, with me and so on. When I moved back to Iceland uh, uh, in 1991, uh, I got, uh, my task was basically to get Marel out of, uh, out of uh, the fisheries only into poultry and meat, which are now the way biggest uh, markets for the company, uh, and build up sales and service offices all over the world, all over the globe. And uh, when, I fin- when I quit, I was managing 800, uh, 800 people and offices in 35 countries. So, uh, and uh, the company was growing very fast. Today, it's like 8,000 people. And when you have a uh, kind of responsibility, such complex responsibilities, to be part of the executive team and so on, you, you start to run into overload. I mean, your stress just keeps on. There's never a, a, a calm moment. I mean, it's a, uh, one thing is finished by a company, then the course is taken on something else. Uh, then you reorganize the company and you just finish that reorganization and then reorganize again and so on. So uh, you, you can never relax. It's, uh, some of the decisions you, you don't even agree with, you think they're incorrect. And still you have to go with the flow, even if it's reorganized again into how it was before, like what I believed in and so on. And that's, that's uh, very hard on, on your your brain, when you, when you feel, hey, this is going in the wrong direction, it's affecting the people I manage, uh, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's not right, and, and they, they're doing great things, and, and, it, uh, and then you just take from them kind of their initiative and, and, and things like that. 
So, I mean, this just started to build up stress for me. And uh, I could feel it myself uh, that it was, it was happening. I was, I was getting into, on a, on a path, uh, on a, walk, wrong, a bad path. Um, so when, you, when you, kind of, you sit in the car and you wait a minute or two before you go into office, uh, then, then you know, hey, something is wrong. Or a Sunday, you kind of, oh, it's Monday tomorrow. Ow. Uh, I traveled a lot on average uh, abroad twice a month, uh, all over the world. So that takes, it's, a, it's stressful too, because I mean, when you're traveling, it's not about flight. It's about you go ongoing, you know, from early in the morning till late in the evening and different cultures and so on. I enjoyed it. But afterwards, you realize it, it, it is quite tough on you. And my coworkers, I mean, they, or my team, uh, they would see kind of, uh, I'm normally be quite a jolly, jolly fellow. And, uh, and you can see the glow in my eyes and so on. And, uh, and that was kind of the, the candle was starting to kind of, uh, the flame was getting very small and uh, disappeared quite often and so on. Uh, so personally, I knew I was in a burnout. But it was really one, one time I was on the, on the way to the airport on a holiday trip. And I was listening to a program in the morning radio. And there was a psychologist. Uh, she was going through the, how, how, uh, the things about burnout and, uh, and the list symptoms of, you know, though. symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, I'm not going to say the F word, but <laughs> basically I, I, <laughs> but I tipped into every box mm-hmm. and more than that. Uh, I'll tell you that, uh, that. That uh, holiday, it's only a long weekend, but it was not joyful because I, I knew, hey, I have to do something about it. And some of the co-workers had been telling me, hey, you, you, you need to do something about it, uh, especially my HR person and so on. Uh, but you kind of, yeah, you'll just struggle it through, be a man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I got an appointment uh, by a, an extremely good psychiat- psychiatrist. And he diagnosed me just within, within a couple of minutes when I told him kind of my symptoms. I said, no, no, you're way beyond burnout. You have sickly stress, which is the next phase after. So I had totally crossed just uh, kind of the, the burnout thing. And, uh, and he was totally correct. And, uh, and he told me, I told him, but I, I, I relaxed during the weekend, you know, I just go out of Reykjavik, go to the farm that we have, and I just start working on all my projects. He said, oh, yes, all your projects. Uh-huh. You think that's relaxing. Your brain needs to have a rest once in a while, and then uh, we, we do basically nothing. I and mean, there, there was a EM uh, uh, soccer football uh, uh, game by the Icelandic team. Uh, the following day, he said, I should tell you not to watch it. It's too stressful for you. But he said... I know I cannot tell you that, mm. uh, but he was, he was correct. I mean, that's uh, uh, what happens after you get diagnosed. I mean, of course, he said, I mean, you, you're, out of, you, you're not going to work. I mean, that's it, period. I knew that myself mm. anyways. It couldn't, couldn't go on like that. But he, he just told me that, you know, I just had to simplify my life dramatically. Uh, if there are three things I want to do today, he said, just do one of them. And one of them is the, the easiest one. Just take the easiest one. What I did not expect happening, and that's why I, I, I think what you're doing on with uh, kind of advising or, or opening the people's mind or, or their eyes about this, because I don't want anyone to go all the way to this sickly stress, because what happens when I, once I have been diagnosed, 
my brain just basically switched off and my nerves went to in hypermotion. So I, I, it's like, and he, afterwards, he, he said, you know, you've been running on adrenaline probably for some years. If not mm-hmm. decades. Yeah, even decades, yeah. And, and he, he said, now the brain is just shutting off the adrenaline. Then you totally go over the edge of, of the cliff. And that happened for sure. I mean, I could not think straight. I could not solve simple things, build simple things. You had brain fog, very tense, my nerves with a, you know, just a small sound, phone ringing or something. I mean, you just check. Uh, I could not drive the car in traffic for, you know, for, for about four months. I just felt like the cars were just hitting, coming towards me and so on. But yeah. before the diagnosis, I will pause you here, Pietro, for a moment. Before you got this label to what mm-hmm. you were going through mm-hmm. and it, it was explained to you what it actually implies on your body and mind, mm-hmm. you just kept going, right? It's, it, it was like, okay, you might be more stressed in the, traf- uh, in the traffic driving, but you still did it and it was okay-ish. But then once you got the diagnosis, No, no, suddenly, that, no, no, the, no? the nurse, that, that was not the case before. Okay. Yeah. That is basically just the brain is switching off mm. and your, your nerves goes into hypermotion. I mean, you cannot be where there's a lot of sound or anything. I mean, I couldn't even go to a funeral because I could just... And, and you get, uh, of course, you get anxiety mm. and then the depression follows it too. Mm. But, but what is the scariest thing is basically that the nerves, I mean, they just crash. Go to Costco, forget it. <laughs> just, just the noise I mean, level I'm, around. I'm usually, if I am okay, it's still too much for me, so I can't imagine going to a Costco when, it's, <laughs> when you're in that state. Yeah, so, uh, so basically, I mean, I had to, I had energy till maybe two, three in the, in the day, and then I just had to lay down and rest for an hour or so, and then I could keep on going. And, but afterwards, and looking back, backwards, the symptoms were there long, long, long before. I mean, so which symptoms were the earliest, would you say? Uh, the memory. Memory starts to fail. It's, it's, and that's what everyone says. I mean, the memory just starts to fail you. And you lose interest in things. Uh, some it affects the sleep for a lot of people too. But uh, you lose interest. I mean, I always enjoyed playing guitar. And I realized afterwards that I had not played the guitar for three years. Always loved cooking. Sunday dinners for the family. And uh, I had no interest in that anymore. And there are other things, you know, just projects I was going to do. I'd lost interest and get myself to do something, do projects or something. It's kind of, uh, I'll, I'll leave that to later, to later or something. You just could not get yourself to do things. So this was at least three years before. And in that moment, so mm-hmm. before you realized what was happening to you, that those were actually symptoms of you having overloaded your systems. Yeah. What, what way did you make that mean about yourself? That you're suddenly not interested, or you're lazy, you're procrastinating with the projects, or anything like that. And, and Did you, you build any stories around that? Uh, what do you mean stories about? Well, that, that you, for example, I, I have to go through that with my clients, that they say, I'm lazy. Mm-hmm. But if we start digging deeper, they just really They just it. cannot get yeah. themselves to do yeah. that. But they start building an, a, a, an identity of being lazy. You are correct. You're absolutely correct. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the story for you as well. Yeah, and I've never been a lazy guy, you know, mm. but uh, I've just lost interest in, yeah, couldn't get myself to do things. Mm. 
But I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stupid also. I mean, I, I knew I, I knew I was in a burnout. I knew I overloaded, you know, I, and, and so on. But I acted way too late. It's kind of you, you want to struggle through it. And, uh, Why? But, uh, a lot of it is to, you don't want to let down your coworkers. I mean, you're, you're running, I mean, offices in, in over 30 countries. And you, you, you want to keep uh, motivating them and so on. And, uh, and I'm, I mean, I'm on an executive team of the company. And executives, they're not supposed to go through burnout. Why not? <laughs> no, of course that's why not. Yeah, but I'm just thinking and, like, and, and let's, let's, let's un- unwrap that because I think there is, there, there is a very important shift that needs to happen through these conversations. And that is what happened when, when I kind of had just had to stop working. Then kind of the whole executive team started shaking because they, they just realized, hey, where am I? And I'm heading there. And I'm not talking about one or two or three. I'm talking about several of them. Mm-hmm. And several of them went and talked to a psychiatrist just to identify and, and because they were, they were quite worried about themselves. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a wake-up call. And uh, afterwards, I mean, I got an interview from a city that you know. Uh, who was uh, publishing a book and uh, one chapter was written about my experience and I opened myself totally up in that chapter and that and the purpose was of course that executives would see that hey if I can talk about it they can they should rethink themselves about uh, how they are feeling and so on and uh, this is it's because a lot of people have, especially since that book and, and, and interviews in the newspapers uh, have approached me and they uh, because they're worried, they're worried about themselves, or kind of feel that way, or have gone through it, and so on. Uh, and and it's much more. It's, it's, it's there are a lot more people that have been going through it, or are worried about themselves than, than we realize. And that's uh, all the way from uh, being a teacher up to executives and so on. So uh, I think everything like like you are doing, and, and and with that book and so on, is, is helping. And I, I find that. Uh, People respect this more. I mean, they're more, uh, they understand it more, uh, understand it better. I mean, the whole society is opening up about it because it's all over. And uh, uh, it's it's very hard for someone that has not gone through it to understand it. So, uh, yeah, a lot of people need someone to talk to. And uh, As we discussed with you uh, after we met, so how how we met genius leaders, um, we... uh, uh, found with Maria a uh, mm-hmm. story of Pietro in Siri's book and that's why we reached out and then we had a chat during the summer project and then after that we, we, we kept in touch on LinkedIn and I told you at some point that I also realized it was actually quite soon after mm, our conversation that I, I'm in the burnout myself mm-hmm. uh, and I think you replied something about that he, you will be able to bring even more value to, to people you work with because you're going through that yourself mm-hmm. yeah. and it's not to say that everyone who are in similar positions like me need to go through that, but that, that does give us the different level of understanding. I had the intellectual understanding and maybe no emotional understanding of what it might be, but having gone through that experience myself, and by no means was I in as serious uh, situation as you have gotten into, but it does give me a different different perspective on how how to give space people to people to my clients to to deal with that and what should that space be about and how to address it and also how to call it out but i'm still learning that because but you're not taking my advice <laughs> you're, you're not simplifying your life you're always adding complexity to your life <laughs> 
So think about that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's actually, I talked about it on the podcast that uh, when I realized that I went to burnout, I actually took a a job. It was mm-hmm. the same day that I applied for a job. And that was a thinking process. Okay, I need to rest, mm-hmm. but it would not happen for me because at that moment I couldn't go uh, somewhere away from home mm-hmm. for, for a vacation. And I realized that a lot of, like, I wouldn't be able to help myself mentally mm-hmm. and emotionally when I'm at home, even if I'm resting, even if I would for- force myself to not do anything because I have been working from home. My whole company is working from home. Oh, okay. I realized that that's part of the reason for the burnout. Mm-hmm. And my mom, when she was visiting us in April, she observed me and she's like, you never switch off. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. is around your company. Yeah. And I mean, it comes from passion because I do want to provide value to my customers, but it just got too much. Yeah. So that's why I took this decision of taking a job. There's a completely different field of work where it's much easier for me to switch off. So okay. it's a context yeah. switch. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I can really switch off my thinking about my company, because that is what kept me on the in the highest gear. So that is really. I follow you. I follow yeah. you. Yeah. So I know that it sounds counterintuitive <laughs> and stupid, <laughs> but it it has helped me enormously. And now I'm um, I I feel better. So now I started kind of adding that the person whom I'm helping, I'm mm-hmm. asking her to speak. I send it to me more. So I start feeling like I'm integrated more in the society and I get to practice language, which I don't do through okay. my company work. So there are many hats that there are, kind of, or many boxes that I ticked for my well-being mm. <laughs> that wouldn't have happened if I would have forced myself to just take a break from my company, for example. Okay, yeah. So I feel like this is a more health, healthier way for me and that kind of helps yes. me compartmentalize Mm-hmm. how who I am my mm-hmm. identity because everything just became my company my identity yeah, yeah, yeah. and now I'm just peeling some things away because they don't belong in my company mm-hmm. activity so you're simplifying that yeah, yeah. so it, mm-hmm. it, I'm busier but I feel like Different I'm more way. aligned mm-hmm. and I'm not stressed from this business right as much as I would be if I'm in the just, company yeah yeah. yeah 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 because stress is the evil part in this mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I, I was totally away from work for two years and then I started coming back, let's say three days a week for three, four hours mm. and then COVID hit. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, so I, I stopped working again and, uh, and then I started going downhill again because I was kind of hurt, you know, I just, I didn't want to go back to work. That was just it. I was, I had, had enough and with COVID and everything. I feel like today I'm, I'm, I'm 85% back. But I have to watch uh, very carefully for a stress level. If the stress level gets too high, uh, I will get the hangover. So I just take on uh, some jobs that I enjoy, which are most are not paid jobs or anything. It's just uh, sitting on board of a few companies and so on and uh, help out startup companies and so on. And, and I, I truly, truly enjoy that. That's very giving. And uh, yeah, so... Being 65, retired for three years, man, it's great. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that part of my life as well. <laughs> not like to say that I'm not enjoying the one that here that is here and now. But I actually wanted to co- cover a couple of things from your experience. Mm-hmm. One, you said that you kept going because even though you realized that something was wrong mm-hmm. and you were in the burnout, you just kept going because you just had to be the role model of pushing through. You had to bring energy uh, you were responsible for 800 people, 35 markets, etc. When you 
did hit the wall. Mm -hmm. What happened there to your work? And what was you what did you observe? Did the world of Marel within you, like within your organization, just crash without you being there? First of all, I never expected that I was at such a serious place. I, mm -hmm. I didn't expect it to be that uh, that uh, that bad. No, the, the the world and the company did not stop running or working because my management style has always been that I surround my people, myself with with people that are extremely capable, especially in the fields where I'm where I'm not. Uh, so they they just kept it going. I mean, it's a when you, when you I, I I don't micromanage at all. I just put my trust in people and empower people and. Uh, And they more talk about me as a mentor than a boss. So when you when you yeah when you do that, I mean uh, things just keep on going. Uh, but when I when I retired totally or went on a break, uh, I got so many nice emails from all over the world. It was and so many. I mean, it was just uh, I, it really touched my heart. What were the emails about? That I just had mentored them and uh, how. how Could it have been to be under my management? And I'm not trying to brag at all. It's just, uh, I feel that management style that I was applying to trust people and uh, empower people and motivate them and be the motivator, it, it really works. And it, it makes people work hard and they enjoy their, 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 their work and what they do. And, uh, and of course, I've been able to compare it to other different management styles within the company. It's a big company. and there's a, has bought many other companies, so uh, it's, it's a, quite a hybrid. And um, I, I think that, but that's also one thing because uh, if you if you manage in this way, it means that you are quite emotional. You get very highly attached to people, and and you, it's all about managing people. And uh, and and, uh, and then I, I think those managers that are kind of managed by this style and, and are very personal, emotional, I, I think it's much more likely that they will they will crash because uh, yeah, you take everything in. Knowing what you know about it, would you still stay with the same leadership style? Absolutely, I don't so believe it. I don't believe in any other management style. That it, it really works. So um, I I talk to quite a lot of leaders who have some difficulty with delegating. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is trust issues mm -hmm. uh, or some need for control based on some fears. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is out of good intentions. They care for their people and that's why they take more on themselves, you know, protecting their people and bubble wrapping their people. But so then you become a bottleneck. So with those, whatever the reasons mm -hmm. for that are, what could you say, like, of course, being the bottleneck, you think you understand it, but you mm -hmm. don't have the connection emotionally to that. So intellectually, you, could, might, you might think, okay, yeah, I'm a bottleneck, but... You might, not, can... you might not be the bottleneck today, mm -hmm. but if the company keeps on growing, you will become the bottleneck because you have to, have to delegate, you have to trust people. And uh, at least uh, in, in, uh, at the head of this year, I mean, it's, it's basically, we trust people until they breach our trust. Mm -hmm. We have also have other companies in the group that kind of you have to earn the trust. And that takes about 10 years. <laughs> so it's better to trust people and those that are not living up to it. You just replace those people with some that, that will. Um, so you can, you can grow much faster. 
How do you practice that? The trust by default approach. Uh, of course, it is a hiring process. You hire people that fit in with the other leaders you have in your group. So they, they, it's, it might not be about the most qualified person, but it's about a qualified person that fits the team. That's much more likely to be successful because it's about the morale and everything. And then, yeah, and then to be able to have fun together too, laugh and smile. I hear about the, um, the fit or some, some leaders called culture ed, that that is so important, especially mm-hmm. the more experienced leaders, the more they pay attention to that. I mm-hmm. see that. They, by experience, I mean that people learn from their mistakes <laughs> and their experiences. So they're really, yeah. they're open-minded and they're, they're ready to change their mind or admit their mistakes with the previous focus. So how do you make sure that you are working on the diversity of the team and really giving equal opportunities to everyone when you're going through the hiring process? Because if I think it, mm-hmm. if, how can we make sure that the fit, look mm-hmm. for the fit, does not become like, I'm looking for people who are just going to be nice with me or who I'm just going to have fun with. How can I make sure that there is a balance there as well? My, my leadership team, I mean, they, they were coming from three, at least three or four countries. Mm-hmm. So it was an international team, man, female, and so on. Constructive feedback, uh, but the feedback is, is never personal. It is, needs to be constructive feedback and people understand I'm not picking on you. I'm not uh, slamming you or anything. I'm, I'm giving you constructive feedback. And I loved it when people gave me a feedback and they, they got used to it very early to, hey, I mean, they would come to me and, and ask, uh, should we do it this way or that way? And I say, so what do you think? I think we should do it this way. So why do you come to my office? And we had a saying in the company with one of the uh, CEOs that we expect you to do a mistake. Just don't do the same mistake twice and minimize the cost. And this is a very good model because, I mean, then you're, you're pushing people to make decisions and there will be decisions that are wrong But if you never make a mistake, you are definitely not pushing yourself uh, hard enough. You're not uh, making a kind of a taking chances and you're not uh, being, I don't know the word, uh, you just to be innovative and, and so on, to do things in a different way and so on. There will be mistakes. That's okay because nine out of ten were great. And uh, I've used that as a model myself to, to always over overperform because I mean if you overperform then uh, things come to you including burnout including burnout yeah <laughs> of course because you, you are pushing yourself you're pushing but I mean you do a lot of creative things and fun and, and uh, we built a huge company and that's by being creative and, uh, and so on so knowing everything that you know right now looking back at your journey could you or anyone around you do something differently to make this journey a, a bit easier for you so that maybe you don't go that far way beyond the burnout even. Yeah, definitely. What would that be? Hey, Genius Leaders, I'm chiming in just to explain one little part that we skipped in Peter's conversation or answer based on his request. Afterwards, he wrote to me that he thought that he was a bit too negative in the way he answered this question of mine. So I respect his uh, um, opinion and wish, so that you will not hear his answer. But to summarize it, 
I think it's a very important point that the leadership teams or executive teams of the companies should walk their talk within the walls of that boardroom or executive room, not only towards the employees. So without going into any details, take that and reflect on that. If you are in any executive team, do you see that within yourselves, you're walking the talk of the culture that you're trying to promote in the whole organization? Let's get back to the episode. That, that, that is, uh, I would say that is one thing, but I think also in just, uh, yeah, sometimes, I mean, people just have to stop you and say, you, now you have to slow down and you have to take a break and uh, figure it out. And who would it be that you would have listened? Should it be your wife? Should it be, because you said that people on your team, including the HR professional within the Marel, who, who were pointing to you that. You need to yeah, yeah, we had we had a discussion, but it's it's it's, it's quite late in the process. Mm. I would say it's, it's earlier than. But I don't think people are just used to seeing those symptoms and so on. I think everyone is much more aware now mm. after it happens. So um, and much more aware within the company itself because quite many have gone to specialists because of early burnouts and so on. So I think the company is much more aware of it today. Mm. But I think it really took, took that you had one of the executives to, to totally crash mm. uh, that they, they started to take it very seriously. So, so you think it would, should have been someone within the professional context of yours to tell you, Peter, you're driving too fast right now, slow mm-hmm. down. Yeah. And of course it should come through uh, under reviews if those happen. <laughs> okay, that's not a given you mean. <laughs> mm-hmm. I actually, uh, I was blessed to have that experience in my career when I was working in Sweden as a, as a consultancy. Mm-hmm. My consultancy manager at our annual review said he was talking about how everyone is happy about, about my performance and my engagement. So mm-hmm. within the consultancy department that I'm taking initiative, mm-hmm. I'm helping others and so on. And my assignments, the clients are always happy that I mm-hmm. go above and beyond and whatnot. And then he took a break and said, Anna, I still have 35 years to work. Slow down. And to me, that was a huge wake-up call that my consultancy manager, hi, Eric, if you're ever listening, <laughs> yeah. um, says that because they are responsible to drive in revenue for the department. Mm-hmm. They are supposed to be the ones pushing us like, yeah, go and do it and like, you know, create the wall effect at the, at the client and so on. And that was the person who told me, you're so, going too fast. So good at reading body language and so on. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And uh, Again, it took a relationship for us, right? We we had the trust relationship with each other. Mm-hmm. And I brought the things that sometimes people would be like, you said that to your manager. And I was like, yeah, he, he's supposed to help me grow. Mm-hmm. And I do need to bring those things to him. So I was sometimes saying about the things that, how they affect me personally, but I just wanted to do that because I was ambitious. I wanted to provide value and whatnot. And he not only looked at that, at, at me as an employee, he looked at me as a human so it took right. that relationship to, for him to hear the things. Mm-hmm. And then it took that human like, or real leader mm-hmm. part of him to listen to those things and actually make the right conclusions and communicate them back to me. That's excellent. Yeah. So that was a very important experience for me in my career uh, to see how leaders could be, first mm-hmm. of all, but also about myself and my, my trends. And Grisha, whom you just met my husband, and then he was still boyfriend, he would be telling me those things. 
that like you're going a bit too fast right now and so on and I'll be like yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's why I asked like who would it be to tell you so that you would listen because I feel like that is so different like, the same thing said by different people in different contexts can absolutely land or absolutely not mm-hmm. and that's why I'm exploring it with you so and you said that it, it should be a professional um, environment for you to hear that and take it in yeah but there are also Some people that are they can read you more easily than others. So I've seen that too. How 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 can a person or organization say it in a way that is actually effective that you actually listen and take action on that? Well, I know in in the company now. I mean, there are all kind of lectures and seminars, and uh, uh, so the HR department has taken it up quite seriously. Mm. But we've we've discussed before. Uh, Like uh, when you are at university and so on, and you're studying, and you, you might get a, a leadership role uh, in in a company, and you have all these courses about mathematics and uh, who knows what, engineering, and and how about uh, self awareness? I, I think that 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 you mentioned that would be should be on the program. So I, I think that would be a huge step. Um, after the discussion with you, I'm meeting someone in the business department and student counsel- counseling here at Reykjavik University mm-hmm. because they are creating those courses right now, a whole series of courses. And we'll see whether I can contribute and help them with that somehow. So it's happening. And I'm very happy to see that. That's, that's absolutely great. Because I mean, leaders or people that have management skills, or, or just that doesn't matter whatever they do. Uh, I mean, that they know what, what kind of symptoms are and so on. And then... And keep keep their mind open to hey, is this happening to me or not? Because you don't have to be a manager or anything, but you can be in a very stressful. We've seen a lot with software engineers, and they have might have timelines. I mean, they have to uh, get things up and running, and something crosses, and they have to just correct it and so on. So yeah, it's, um, so awareness is a big part of that. Yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Yeah. So even general one, as you said, having lectures, just speaking about that, and your yeah. own example driving to the airport for a vacation and you hear a program mm-hmm. talking about those things. Yeah. And then suddenly that lands for you like, oh, I'm taking all the boxes. Then you know there's no point to return. <laughs> you <laughs> just have to do something about it. <laughs> yeah, but luckily we see the most point of return there still <laughs> that you're still here with us. <laughs> um, I'm enjoying all that. But um, I think that's an important part. If we shift the topic a bit. Okay. Uh, in the summer when we met, you talked about this big part of society shift coming from the paternity leave mm-hmm. that has become a mandatory. Can you explain why you think that that is a big, that was an important moment for the Icelandic society and in which ways has that translated into the workplace? I, I think for females, I, I know, you know, from, from older days that only the female would take time off maternity leave, maybe only three months or whatever. But still... That was it was more difficult for them to get a higher position within companies. If you were at that age, that you could expect that would, that you would take three times a maternity leave and so on. Uh, so man was, I mean, it, it is true. They would rather hired for that position. When it came that the maternity leave would be for both genders, the father and the mother, and uh, paid for 80% or whatever, then it didn't matter if it was who, who was hired for the job. And now it's even, it's 14 months and, uh, and, and split, they can split it, I think, equally or, or, you know, just, they can balance it and so on. 
So definitely uh, that has changed a lot for, for on the female side. But it has also changed a lot on kind of the, how, how the younger generation thinks. Because, I mean, you, you uh, take four months off. Let's say you're a man. You take four months off. And you're just taking care of, of the baby. And you don't think about work. So that's different stress. <laughs> it's a diaper-changing stress. <laughs> so family values have changed big time. So there's a lot more family values and taking care of a family, do things with the, with the, the kids and so on, and take them to all those music lessons or sports lessons and things like that. And we find also that it's more difficult to have people travel worldwide because they want to have more family time. So, uh, so it's not like when I, when I was working uh, uh, in those days, I mean, being away for 100, 150 days all over the world and uh, especially taking a lot of weekends off. I mean, it's, uh, I, I think this, this is for much better. And, and, and in reality, it should lower the stress level and you should not get as attached to the company. And you find, let's say, more values that you want to do with, with uh, the family. Go out biking and <laughs> uh, so uh, I think this is uh, it's a good thing. Healthier. This is, uh, I liked how one of the um, career strategists I worked with said it. When you're getting a kid, your system of coordinates shifts. And I really liked how she said it mm-hmm. uh, that way. That. It could be the still same values, but you look at them in a different perspective or from different perspective or the zero point has moved. And uh, getting the time to actually land into or into that self-awareness of where is my system of coordinates right now? Uh, if I can just add yeah. also, like uh, 30 years ago or whatever, I mean, it would be typical to work overtime, work during evenings, work on Saturdays and so on. That's almost unheard of now. So people put in a lot of hours. And that's, a, that's the family values now. People want to spend time with the family. Don't want to work on Saturday for to get extra back. Yeah, so they don't, they don't want that. Even they know they can get some extra money. So uh, I think that's, that's healthier. So um, with that perspective, now when, the, when we're recording this, it was just two weeks ago that there was this big uh, strike here. So when we, when women stopped mm-hmm. working for the whole day mm-hmm. um, and went to the city center for a big demonstration, mm-hmm. and this is first time that happened here in Iceland several decades ago, then that really moved forward with uh, women's rights mm-hmm. in, in the workplace. Uh, so I totally understand the idea of why we would do that. But right now, right here, I'm actually struggling with seeing what was the focus of this strike. And I would like to hear mm-hmm. your opinion of, uh, and, and it's not to criticize what, what has been done. For me, it's more the, it feels like it was mixed a bit, whether we're trying to make some shifts in the workplace, on the government level, on the personal level. So what was the focus? So what, what's your perception of that one? I, I mean, we, we are now the nation with kind of the, we've gone furthest with equal rights and uh, equal pay to men and, and female. I think this demonstration was just to show that we might be at a good place, mm. but it's not good enough. We need to take it all the way. We're on a good path. And I think a lot of things changed also when we got the first female elected president in the world. 
So then it's high, that's uh, the highest position in the country. Uh, but we're not there yet. It's the same with uh, gay people and so on. I mean, it's we, we are very far ahead. We're quite uh, in the front with uh, kind of all other nations and so on. But we're not there. Mm. And we just need to do better and strive for excellence. So it's really about the showing that just because we're ahead of our, everyone else doesn't mean that we need to sit down and relax exactly. and, and focus on yes. what, what's still to come. Yeah, because then it can start to slip. And there's even mandatory that there should be a certain ratio of men and female on board of uh, directors or companies. So uh, that's... There are things that are very good here with mm-hmm. that, just as well, like uh, if it's 50 employees or more in Icelandic company, which is fairly big for Iceland, mm-hmm. uh, then you you're legally required to do the audit of the equal pay and yes. based on gender and uh, those kind of things. Yeah. That at least it brings awareness to people that, hey, we might have bias here or we might have blind spots here mm-hmm. and we need to pay attention to that. Yeah. What I was wondering about with the strike, I thought directly about some friends of mine where the relationship, the personal relationship is not as equal, where a lot of household things, for example, are running on the woman and are taken for granted. And I thought that in those situations, if they take a strike uh, one day off, mm-hmm. it just lands on their plate later on, or it's a stress for them before to make it all work, prepare for the strike so that it actually works for the family during the strike day. So I was wondering, what do we need to shift there? How how we, both as, as men and women, can be better to make it more equal at home? I think it has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. It has changed a lot. I mean, going back... 50, 60, 70 years, I mean, a man would never cook a meal at home. Now, as so many places, I mean, he, he, he prepares meals more often than the female and so on. So it's totally, uh, it's very cool. It's also about what you have. And, and with the kind of taking care of the kids and so on, I think it's, I think it has changed a lot. But are we there? I don't know. I don't it has know. shifted for sure. It has shifted for sure, yeah, but it uh, can always do better. Why uh, I'm bringing those things up because I feel like that's also a big part for men's mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to change those roles. We need to change the narratives mm-hmm. also at home yeah. so that the men have the permission to talk about those things more openly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that will hopefully also change their roles and their perceptions in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm bringing that home part of the conversation or into the conversation because I feel like they're so interrelated. And we need to address those things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what, what do you think we have not covered in this topic of, of burnout and preventing it or maybe soft, softening the blow there uh, so far that are important to bring up? Well, well I decided from, from day one after being diagnosed, I mean, that I would be very open about it. Uh, I think the worst thing you can do is to try to keep it in and then and just keep a lid on, on a can and not talk about it and so on. I, I think that's that, that is going to make it longer for you, take longer to kind of get better and so on. And the more people are open to talk about it, I mean, then, then it's kind of a spider's out, you know, then, uh, then uh, people will know about it. Will know it uh, you, you don't have to be ashamed or anything. And uh, yeah, just the overall awareness of it. So what I hear is uh, it's about speaking both for your own sake and your healing journey to mm-hmm. accept it and go through it, but also for the others to, yes. to have stories. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Have you been anyhow shamed when you were sharing your story? No, never. What do you never, think? Ever. Why, why not, do you think? Because I'm thinking this is such a big fear of so many people to open up that they will be seen as weak, they will be shamed and stuff like that. And your experiences that it has, has never happened. What is the disconnect there? I, I am a very open person and uh, kind of people person and so on. And, and I did not feel ashamed about it. And, uh, and uh, I just wanted people to know. I mean, I, I stopped working because I crashed. And uh, simple as that. And uh, don't try to hide it or anything. Yeah. And I tell people it can be scary. <laughs> so, um, to open up? You mean no, no, no. To, to, uh, to, to, to go through this and so on. So uh, uh, better listen to your body and mind. What would you have liked to do yourself on that journey to maybe not get that far? I mean, I had heard about burnout. I had never heard about the extra step, kind of going off, off the cliff and fall all the way down. I had not heard about that. So um, I want to help preventing that happening to people because that's, 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 that's really bad. You never come all the way back. Never. So, um, do you miss that person, that Pietro that was there before? Uh, sometimes I do, yeah. Uh, but uh, overall, I'm, I'm in a good state at the moment and uh, enjoy life and uh, I laugh and, uh, and the spark is back in the eyes and so on. So I can attest that. <laughs> I see the spark. <laughs> and and you, sure. do, you do have this energy of, of joy when, when I meet you. Yeah. So it's, it's not about clinging on to that version of you who was there before. No, I'm, I'm still that person and so on. And uh, I've, always, uh, I've also learned and learned very early that uh, the smile and the laughter is the most pow- powerful management tool or, or, or let's say personal tool in making people feel good and, uh, and uh, it costs nothing. Can you give an example where, where that really helped? Where I'm just thinking like if you're in a very stressful situation, I don't know, you lost the biggest customer on the market and that really puts everything into question. And you need to somehow use this, the, the humor to, to keep the spirit of the team or whatever it is. I would, I would say it's different. I mean, by being kind of jolly and smiling and so on, you can open up people very fast. I mean, you break the eyes, you can start, you know, you just, just do a little laughing and so on. And you're just immediately, you're just in a set, you set the mood and uh, for, for whatever discussions are going to happen and so on. Uh, so it, it's not if you if you lose a contract and so you so on and you come laughing because of that that, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, but how like what is the jolliness then? Like what what do you bring? Like how does it look like? How does it sound like? What is it? Well, I mean, it, it needs to be genuine. You have to feel like it. You cannot make it up, but you can you can develop it. Can definitely develop it and make it smooth and nice and easy. And uh, so it goes back to self leadership that you need to work on yourself. Yeah. To be able to help others grow and. Yeah, and you have to know your weaknesses and how you can uh, overcome that by finding others that are good in that. I cannot remember numbers. I cannot remember lyrics, and and I play instruments. So so I mean, being in a leadership, and, and you don't remember numbers. But I can look at and I can look at numbers and I can look at annual reports and everything, and it, I can I can read through it all, see it all. But remember it afterwards, forget it. Mm. Birthdays, man! <laughs> I'm glad I have a I have a calendar in my phone. 
So, uh, yeah, you just have to work around it. Back to self-awareness, what we discussed already a couple of times. Yeah, and don't hide it. Don't be as shy about it. It's just, yeah. Own it. Bear with me. <laughs> so, um, Peter, thank you so much for the conversation. I think there are so many things in your experience that can help people. And I do hope that you genius leaders are listening and taking it in. Because I know that sometimes you can hear those stories a lot of times, but they don't land. Mm -hmm. But whenever you're ready to face the truth, mm -hmm. hopefully this might be a nugget for you. Mm -hmm. Like the that program with the psychiatrist was for Peter on, on the radio. <laughs> so if that's the case, then my mission is well, <laughs> successful. I'm, I'm glad to be able to share my story with, uh, with all of you that are listening to this podcast. Anything that you think we haven't covered and we need to uh, bring up before we wrap up? I think we've done pretty good. Great. Hmm. I'm happy. Thank you so much, Pit. And to you, Genius Leaders, as always, I am grateful that you're part of this community. And uh, if you need this reminder, I see you, I hear you, and I love you. And I do believe that we, we can be better at taking care of ourselves so that we, we are healthy and happy and jolly throughout our life without hurting ourselves. So listen to yourself, listen to those signals, and take action based on them to take care of yourself. It's never selfish and negative thing to do it. You're also walking your talk when you do it. Talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Genius Leadership Podcast. If you enjoyed the conversation, hit the subscribe button. Please rate, review, and share to help more people discover the show and become the better leaders. For more conversations about living in your zone of genius, connect with me on LinkedIn. Genius Leadership is an honors conversation about leading yourself and others, and it is my honor to be a guide in overcoming everything.